Today on episode number 265 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Danjun Wang describes his relentless serving and learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest is a part of the series that I have been doing with the California State University. In this special Teaching in Higher Ed podcast series, we highlight outstanding faculty that are transforming higher education and supporting student success throughout the California State University. These individuals, and today's guest is no different, have sought to address equity gaps that previously existed in their courses through innovative course redesigns and creative teaching approaches. Dr. Wang, today's guest, has regularly taught research design and statistics courses in face-to-face, hybrid, and online course formats. These courses are historically challenging for some students. Meanwhile, the course rigor also plays an important role to increase the value of California State University degrees in the employment market. To promote the inquiry-based learning and knowledge acquisition, Dr. Wang incorporated cutting-edge technology into the curriculum to break three barriers in student learning, and he talks about these on today's episode. Number one, make course learning more affordable. Number two, make learning experiences more useful. And number three, make instructional support more accessible. JJ, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It's my pleasure to be here appreciate your opportunity to have me here and talk to your audience. I enjoyed going back and looking at your website where you have your publications and you have your degrees and and the things you've been working on. And all I can say is I got a little tired just looking at it. You have been (laughs) working very hard for many, many decades. And it's just fun to look at all of that. And I wonder if you could take us back to your starting. I guess it would be too hard to start from the beginning. But let's start for you working for the California State University system. Talk to us about that transition in your career and what attracted you to the organization? Well, my feeling about the entire professional career is that it is important for us to engage our students and help them create life-changing opportunities and thus make the world a better place. When we help them to improve their life, we also improve our professional life as well. The reason I choose the CSU Bakersfield was because of a good fit to my research interest. I used to run a statistical lab for agricultural and educational research in Kansas. In King County, which has the county seat at Bakersfield, agriculture is a major sector of the economy. And CSE Bakersfield is the only regional comprehensive public university within a hundred mile radius. So that's the part really attracted me. And also education demand is increasing because of population growth. When we're thinking about California, people normally think the population size is reducing, but not in this Central Valley. The Central Valley 
the population is still growing. So I feel that I can make some impact and I will have better future, more demand tomorrow. My family, when I was growing up, was in agriculture, although not any longer. It hasn't been for a couple of decades, but it actually was in our family for four generations. And and, and I guess this will share with you a little bit my bias. And I know that the way I grew up (laughs) can be very different, but I don't think about agriculture as life-changing opportunities. (laughs) And I won't go into my personal story there, but one of the things that comes up so often on the podcast is just this idea of making a difference, helping our students tap into their strengths and the things that they are passionate about. And so for you, are you do you find yourself more trying to, to find what's life-changing about your research areas or more helping them pursue completely different things than you've been interested in because that may be the path for them? How do you see that part of your teaching and research? Well, I see both. Yeah. Because if we ignore ourselves, then we're not optimize our strengths. Mm-hmm. But if we ignore the student we are serving, we do not uh, see the potential in their future. So for that reason, we have to think about both. It's like uh, how to portray ourselves. When we portray ourselves, we could call ourselves as I, I, I can do this, I can do that, I can do anything. Or we can portray ourselves as me in reference to others. Because it's not just us, it's not, we only deal with egocentric perspective. We also need to position ourselves in the context. You know, like given the students in this institution, they're not just having me as a professor, they also have others, my colleagues as professor, then what would be the best option for them as well? But yeah, uh, I also feel, you know, the first part is uh, very important too, because if we ignore I perspective, just focus on me perspective, we will lose our identity. So to do both, I feel that each of us is kind of unique. Like, for instance, when I deal with my background, I deal with statistics, and I was in the doctoral program. I passed qualified exam. I also deal with the physics because I had my master's degree in physics. And also I had a statistics part. I had a master's degree as well, plus education. So when this thing coming together, well, students probably think, well, is it efficient? You know, why do I have to go such a long way? <laughs> so, but in reflection, you also see the unique part because if you don't consider both, then sometimes the information could be misleading. I remember that in the National Science Foundation project, for instance, I did some research on And then they deal with some simple questions to test students' scientific proficiency. And what they did was they said, that's a piece of ice inside of water. When the ice melt, what is the change for the water level? Will it go up, will it go down? Well, that sounds an easy question, clear question. But then if you think, well, that's not statistics. That's not so much of a, uh, education either because it deals with the physics. Well, I happen to have master's degree in physics. If I cannot, I do not have the competency to answer that question, then I did not really gain much knowledge during my learning experience. So for that reason, I checked the answer from the NSF. Even if NSF, the answer was uh, just no change over the water level because when ice melt, the water level would stay same. But then as a physicist, I feel awkward. Why? 
because my answer could be unique. My answer would be low because it could be low. Why? Because it didn't tell me under what temperature the ice is melting. Then it could take hours. It could take days. Then we have evaporation. Mm -hmm. But if <laughs> I were to answer that question through international testing, and then if I were to represent the United States, and I won't do well because I, according to their grading rubric, they won't give you credit if you say it's a law. But it's not because I know less. It's because I know as much, or perhaps even more thoughtful, no more. So those are good examples to make students reflect on themselves, and exercise critical thinking to continue the lifelong improvement. What are some of the benefits that your students get when they take online courses from you? Well, I would say online is kind of still relatively new, but new doesn't mean it's bad. I see three advantages for taking online class. The first advantage is uh, unlike the face-to-face -face instruction, when the class start, even though you had a long day, you have to adjust yourself to face the challenge in the classroom. But for online, when you're tired, then you don't have to study right away. You can take a nap, you can keep yourself fresh, so use your best period to do study. So that's the first advantage. So the time is up to you to choose. Secondly, you have more opportunity to learn. Like when I record the lecture, and then that lecture video can be played multiple times, like eight, nine times, if students say, well, I don't get it. Let's go slow on this part. Let's go fast on the other part. Well, they can control the pace. But if you deal with a face-to-face, you ask instructors to repeat the same thing eight times, it's not so feasible because there are other classmates there waiting for the opportunity, learning opportunity as well. So that's the second part. You can control the pace. The third part is also very important because we're not just teaching students during, in the classroom. We also do advising. When we do advising, just like what we do now, we could have Zoom technology. A student come to me and we deal with discussions. They do not have to write notes because Zoom can record the notes. So that will help them to become more concentrated. So I see these three things are the advantages for students taking class in general, not just for me, taking class with me. But to take it with me, there are some special advantages because I teach statistics. First, I make the course learning more affordable. So if students take any other statistics classes, uh, instructors tend to make them purchase the SPSS student version. That will cost more. But for me, we deal with a cloud-based online lab. The student did not need to pay anything. The second advantage would be they could make the learning experience more useful because they could replicate what we learned in class and trying to replace the number part of the syntax with their own number, they can apply the example for their future jobs. So the learning, the online setting is a perpetual. It will never expire. So that's something I also feel could be very helpful. The third piece I think is very helpful is that I make the instructional platform more accessible. Because if it's, uh, we deal with the internet, well, that internet access is only thing they need. They don't need to worry about uh, software in installation. 
and they don't need to worry about anything with a typo because we do the point click. So in that way, my students say, make it both nutritious and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> like nutritious, we do something useful. They can replicate in the future. And delicious, we meet their flavor. We avoid destruction and let them control the face. I told them they have the veto power. If they don't get it, I won't move forward. So that's about a special advantage. Talk more about the statistics because anyone listening, they may, we have many people who wouldn't teach statistics, but somebody at their institution does. And there are some significant costs there, whether the cost is borne out by the students or at my institution, the cost is borne out by the institution itself. And this can be very, very expensive. What does this cloud-based online lab look like? Did you build this yourself? Is this something that you have partnered with another company on? How, how does that happen? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. It takes a commitment because I still remember when I started teaching online, it was 1999. And then we went through several options. Then eventually right now, the cloud-based is the, we're using the SaaS studio. I'm not just the advertising for the SaaS company, but I tell you, we really tried other options. But now all student need is to register account at a SaaS company. Then they can submit their program code to that cloud-based computing facility. Then after that, then they automatically get the printout. They can print. So that way, they don't need to worry, say, well, I didn't bring my laptop. How can I do statistical analysis? You have online access, you can do it. It's just like others. The technology has grown so quickly and I have to keep learning to stay on top, you know, which is also fun part because for professors nowadays, we also feel that we are learner. And that's what you also refer to as lifelong learning. I'm finishing up a book right now and I can relate to what you just said because the book is about personal productivity for specifically for faculty. But I, I'm, I'm mentioning specific tools that I use in managing my calendar, email, tasks, projects, etc. But you know, as soon as you name a tool, then all of a sudden the tool, <laughs> there's going to be a different one. So I, I know what you're talking about. But it is it is always helpful to know what for today, you would recommend and you have found this good solution, but that you know, tomorrow, there may be something else. And that what I'm hearing you say is just the essential part of our jobs is to be helping to make learning more affordable, and never ceasing our quest to find additional ways to help our students thrive in their learning. That's that's what I'm hearing from you about this. Exactly. I think uh, we both agree on that point because uh, engaging students is uh, very important. You know, there's no smart student, stupid student. All students almost created equal, I would say, if you're talking about brain structure, all those things. But the key is uh, whether the instructor has a an effective way I would be willing to pay attention to find the effective way to engage students. I remember that in statistics context, because we deal with the probability influence. And then probability, if you want to talk about chance probability, you got to deal with randomization. And when you're using those terms, especially for non-math measures, those students, they feel kind of intimidated. And that kind of thing, I often tell them, I say randomization is not something abnormal. We all come to the world through randomization. 
because none of us can be chosen to be born in a particular family. And also we did not bring any clothes with us. So for that reason, we have similar pretest score. And if you say, well, why do I have to struggle and to learn, uh, study so hard? Well, that's uh, what's going to count it towards your post-test score when you leave the world. If you say, what a story, because I accumulate a lot of assets. I bought several houses and mansions. Well, that's my post-test score. No. When you leave the world, the mansion would stay. It is what you learned that will go with you, uh, that in your brain, then will be accounted as a post-test score. <laughs> so if you say make life meaningful, <laughs> well, that's the better way, that's a good way, but then that's the best way. The best way is to optimize yourself because that's your life and it's under your control. That's why you need to make sure you make most of it. Something else I see in your life and in your teaching is perhaps measuring your post-test score, how oh. much you're able to have others learn. That I mean, you, you have a humility about you that couldn't possibly have it be that your post-score is purely just your learning, <laughs> but I see you, you know, you want this so much for your students. It's always like a pleasure when I feel I was mentored by my advisor, like uh, Dr. Steva, John Steva at Purdue University, and also several professors, wonderful professors at Kansas State, especially in statistics. I kind of often reflected on that and trying to figure out, you know, since I was taken care of by my professors, I ought to kind of optimize that uh, heritage and uh, do all I can to benefit my students. Like one example I still remember vividly, like a student tend to kind of get confused uh, about some rules like probability, less than 0.5 or reject my hypothesis. It sounds so remote to them. And I just tell them, you know, like uh, for instance, uh, 10 years ago, whatever, then they still remember O.J. Simpson trial. In O.J. Simpson trial, the gloves did not fit. Then the chance for it to fit to be, can be very small. That's what uh, Johnny Cochran say. Say, well, the chance slim. It doesn't fit, it must quit. That's why we reject <laughs> our hypothesis for the same reason, because in statistics, it's also common sense. P less than 0.5, that means the chance slim. That's the, the basis for us to reject our hypothesis. So when we approach students this way, and they don't feel so intimidated. And that's what we do at a CSU, because we offer quality and affordable education. A lot of students, they feel it's not so affordable because they're first generation college students. They also feel the quality is not quite there because they did not have the support from their family because they're first generation to engage in the learning process. We, when we offer the higher education, it's our responsibility to deliver that service, to take care of students. Know where they are, understand their situation, then we can engage. If we just say, well, I know my subject, I know my content, well, need the extra step for us. That's why we have this kind of faculty innovation and leadership. If we don't take the leadership, faculty control the curriculum. Who is going to take the leadership? So that's important. What I see in your example, in this context, you put it in a legal context, in a story that, you know, connects with me in mm -hmm. my late 40s. And then also, they just recently came out with a new 
documentary. So it's like it got another re life into today's younger generations where they may have heard of that trial or may have seen it, you know, become a new in, in that. But then I also see you being able to really think in unique ways in terms of this interdisciplinary that you have. So you've got education and physics and statistics. And to me, that probably helps your students better be able to see the things that they're learning, how they take place outside of your classroom, outside of your online class. I think back to my education and where those areas I wish now that I knew they say that as we get older and older, we just wish we knew more and more. We, we regret, you know, or we become even more fascinated in areas we were never particularly interested in in our younger years that you're just able to do that. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about some more examples of how you're taking these, whether they're formulas or, or whether they're procedures, like you said, and then how are you showing that lens for this really does relate to you? Yes. Well, that's very important because uh, when we deal with this kind of situation, if we don't have a practical approaches, when we deal with just ideas, well, we all want to help all students learn. But then we also have to think hard about how to implement it, how to best achieve that. And in my practice, I normally focus on three things when students take my class. I focus on first, when to use each method. And second, how to use the method. Third would be how to interpret the results. So when students have a data or have a question, they ought to know where to start, which is when to use each method. If they don't know when to use each method, they're confused. Even they know which method to use, if they don't know how to use it, that's not good because we're not prepare them as both a consumer and a producer of educational research. Because when we prepare them as a good producer, they ought to know how to use the method. And also the third part, how to interpret the results. If they know the question at the beginning, they know which method to use, how to use it, and how to interpret the results. It's just like a Radio Shack advertisement. What Radio Shack say, they say, you got questions, we got answers. <laughs> That's how we handle. But I must add one more thing though. It's not something come automatically. Because for instance, I have a table, it's not just lip service. What is the table? The table lists like the, the situation, research situation, how many variables you deal with, how are the variables measured. Okay? Then given that circumstance, the students can explain, then the table will guide them regarding which method to use. And after students identify a particular cell in that table regarding the method to choose, there's a hyperlink they can click. Once they click the hyperlink in the table, there's a video to show them step-by-step step how to use the method. That's the second point. Is this something where if I were looking at your table, mm -hmm. I can go at my own pace and choose which things I, I'm curious about or I have questions about? It's more of a self-directed? Yes. That's what a student use as a treasure after graduation, after finished program. They still use a table. That's why I make every effort to make all the hyperlink still working, still current for that table, because I know someone out there in the community, no longer in the program, but they graduate from the program, are still using that table. Is this something that the people listening today would be able to view, or is it just for your past students? I can provide a link. 
I must add, though, I'm not the only one who did this. Uh-huh. And our colleagues of uh, Central Michigan University, they created a video as well. And they are so generous. They allow me to share with my students. UCLA also had a videos. So now we kind of utilize resources all together because I also go to the annual meetings of American Statistics Association. And when I go over there, I try to build a network. So it's always important to make sure you don't just work on something alone. You work in the real world, trying to utilize the resources from the professional organizations to make sure you're doing the best. I see this so often as a big shift in terms of, I I see it happening in open education where you see so much more collaboration amongst, amongst these experts from different institutions. And then also seeing it just in terms of excellent teaching, we tend to used to think of ourselves as, well, we're just here as the providers of information and now I see so many people, I'm always encouraging people, think of yourself more as a curator. And and yes, you do still need to be very present for your students and have them, you couldn't just, oh, here's a bunch of videos, you know, Michigan, UCLA, they're great, watch them. I mean, you need, you need to have a no. strong presence in your class, but that doesn't mean you have to have made every video. Right. Yeah, the share and the teamwork is very important. We not just benefit from the work from others, I, at least, I feel that I also ought to do my part. I ought to be someone who grounded on my own training and trying to enrich the teaching with active research so that I can have something to be shared by other colleagues. I'll give an example, like for instance, I deal with a lot of research, maybe not so much, and I cannot just brag in a lot of them. I just use a, a couple of examples. One example is like a multiple choice test. Well, a multiple choice test, the score could be contaminated by guessing. You give choice, students could guess it, you know, because uh, there's no way to prohibit them from guessing. Then if a question had five possible answers, they could have 20% chance to just guess the correct answer, which is one out of five odds, 20%. But if the test has more questions, it is unlikely to guess all answers correctly. So for that reason, the guess impact can be controlled if you have a certain number of questions. Because if you say, well, if I give one question, it's too risky for students to guess it correctly. But if you make more questions for students to guess each question correctly, well, the chance will be slim. So I have a table that was published in Educational and Psychological Measurement Journal. And that table has been checked, used by numerous book authors. By checking that uh, table, when they say, I want to control the guessing impact, I don't want a student just to guess and finish my class, pass my test. Well, you can determine how many options you need for each question and how many questions you need in order to control that uh, guessing impact. So that's an example. And is that how many options for each question and then how many questions related to that particular measure of learning, you know, that topic yeah. or that, that thing or you're trying test. to test for? Yeah. You know, even the test just have one or two questions, well, student could just guess it. They get a 20% chance to pass and 25% chance to pass, depending on how many options in the question. But if your question is a test is too short, then the student could just guess a couple of times and bet on the luck and to finish the test. Yeah, yeah. 
Another example I also did was about test misgrading because it's not a multiple choice. You could have essay test. Essay test, you don't deal with this kind of guessing anymore because you have to supply your answer. But the problem is that it needs to be graded by human being. And if it needs to be graded by a teacher, for instance, then they might be tired. They might have a misgrading. So how do we control misgrading? We often schedule a break before the first misgrading occurs. But the chances for misgrading vary because when you're fresh, the, there's a high chance for zero misgrading. If you're tired, you're almost certain to have a misgrading. So given that circumstance, the distribution, if you want to describe the kind of misgrading pattern, the probability for misgrading will be U-shaped because it could be high probability at two ends, not so much in the middle. But that one, I also wrote an article on that because there's a big name called Rush. And now if you talk about a college board, uh, SAT, ACT, they all use the Rush model. Rush model is not just one model. Rush also had another model for typing error mistyping uh, in the same book uh, that people use. But then that mistyping, he also said, was well, schedule a break before the first mistyping occur. Well, that can be transferred to a test misgrading, schedule a break before the first misgrading occur. But if you just simply be loyal to the Russian model, that he used a constant as a probability for misgrading. As I just described, it cannot be constant. It actually is a U-shaped probability for misgrading. Could you talk me through this U-shape? Tell me what's on one end of it and on the other end. The one end would be when the grader, when the instructor is fresh, there's a very high chance on one end with zero probability for misgrading. Because they're fresh, they're not going to make something wrong. And then if they're tired, the chances are they always do misgrading. You know, even you're tired, you say, I'm tired, I still do one time right, one time wrong, one time right, one time wrong. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Just say, close your eyes, driving, you hit someone. Yes. Uh, you hit something. You cannot say, well, I, today I hit, tomorrow I close my eyes, I won't hit anyone. That's not going to happen. So the chance on the both ends would be very high. So instead of using constant, like a simplistic model from Rush, I improved his model. Whatever he can get, I could get it, the result, like how long to wait for the first misgrading, those kind of index, we can calculate. But except I don't use that assumption anymore. And I make it more realistic because indeed in reality, the misgrading opportunity is not constant. It is a U-shaped random variable. And so what is then the different prescription? Is it the wait time or is it something else? What is the, what changed from his, his recommendation or his findings to yours? His finding would be typists need to schedule a regular break before the first mistyping. And then if we use his model in testing, we'll say, well, graders need to have a break before first misgrading. But how do you know when to schedule a break? Yeah. That break time, according to his model, will apply to anyone, whether you're fresh, you're tired, whomever. He will give you a number. Well, that's not right because Using my model, and we could let it as a variable, accommodate his result as a special case. Then we can still schedule the grading period regarding when to take a break. So how do I then, what's what's your advice to me? <laughs> well, 
my suggestion for that is to always uh, if you know we want to make it a cost benefit then we want to make sure the graders not only well prepared but also well rested mm -hmm. before we even start the grading session and that way we'll do much better if we say well they're tired but we have pressing task we have to get it done there's something attached to it you know the cost because you are schedule more frequent break and then you're not going to be able to apply the quality control as you originally planned before we go to the recommendations i just have one quick related question because you're mentioning one part of the body of research around the fallibility of our grading another one that i'm very familiar with more on an anecdotal level i haven't done extensive mm -hmm. reading but that's the idea that if i were to go and grade some short answer essay questions mm -hmm. that there's going to be a lot of bias up front for the first couple that i do mm -hmm. until i get into more of a rhythm and then of course i've sort of almost i don't want to do this but i'm almost mm -hmm. grading then exams three through whatever back to as it compares to one or two what what is the advice out there or are you familiar with this part of the research around the bias that shows up when we when yes, we do that yes uh, well what you just said it was a very important it's the other side of the coin because when we say the uh, greater they become fatigued those things well student could be fatigued as well yeah when you know when you give a lengthy test because our curriculum considers the mile wide and uh, a inch deep. If it's a mile wide, then that wide, then we cover a lot of things. No test can really comprehensively cover all the topics in the curriculum. Then what can we do? Well, the thing is that to avoid biasness, the test setting is the most important. Because if you include every questions in the curriculum, in a test, then no one can guarantee that they sometimes pay attention, sometimes not pay attention. Then when that sloppy answer you see, then you're not gonna feel good, then the, which will impact like what you said as a bias. Now, how do we do that? It's not my idea. It's a, already been done in a national assessment of educational progress. It's a congressionally mandated project. What they did was they cut the entire test bank, the lengthy test into pieces. Each student just take a, a, a portion of the test. Then they didn't take the other questions. We can impute, there's a multiple imputation procedure. We can guess, given the answer you had, then what would be your overall score? They can guess that. But because the guessing also deal with the statistics, because when you deal with that guessing, then uh, imputation, you can't be so for sure. If you cannot claim for sure, you do multiple imputation. So I also had a, a recent article published in the American Statistician. In that article, I urged for more imputations because the national assessment, they only impute five times and in the past. More recently, they adapted to 20. But if you're talking about statistical standard software, they no longer deal with 20. So when you deal with the imputation, you guess the score, that can reduce the student fatigue, ensure better quality of the performance. Then that also kind of give the grader a chance to feel better because it's not a sloppy answer anymore. Yeah, and part of this is bumping up to me the research that just talks about having more lower stakes assessments 
across a semester or a term is going to give you a better measure of learning than the midterm and final will give you a measure of learning. And for the reason that you just cited of that, you, you, don't, you don't know what you're catching them in terms of the, it's, it's just too great of a probability. I'm trying to speak in statistics and that is not my background, but you know what I'm saying. Well, you are very precise on that one though. Yeah. yeah. Well, we all can learn statistics, I guess, because I did not start as a stat major. And when I took a qualified exam at Kansas State, and I automatically got accepted to American Statistics Association as a member because the department paid for that. They always grant that kind of membership to the top performance. Oh, the wonderful. top performance, then my classmates feel kind of not so typical because they feel they're mathematician. They had a master's degree in math. But my master's degree was in physics. Mm -hmm. But when I compete against them in the PhD qualified exam in statistics, so we all have to have this kind of confidence. You know, whatever we are trying to pursue, it's a common sense approach that's more dependable. If we feel something so heavy, so difficult, we're not going to be able to use it. Yeah. Well, and that, that you spoke about that earlier, too, in terms of just wanting this to be seen as accessible to anyone. And part of that is believing that any of our students are capable of great, magnificent things. And you come across to me as someone who thinks, you know, perhaps even beyond what you have accomplished, that that would be, it's, it's definitely fits in with an agricultural theme, you know, that the future harvests will, that they can go beyond anything you would be able to yield just, just on your own. We want all our students to learn, and we want them to all be successful, perhaps in different ways, but they can be successful. Yeah. That's very important. Yeah. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations, and I just have one today, and that is that I have actually recommended this podcast player before on the show. It's called Overcast, and I know that a number of listeners use it because I get little statistics about where people listen or what, what services they use to listen to this podcast, and Overcast is a big one. It is, by the way, on iOS, meaning on iPhones and other Apple devices, so those of you listening on a different platform. This is not quite for you, but I promise that JJ will have a good thing to recommend in just a moment and mine will be over soon. So I've recommended it before, but they just added a feature that I cannot resist sharing today. And that is that you can share a clip of a podcast now. So when you're listening in Overcast, if you hear something that you'd like to share, it could be shared over email, it could be shared on Twitter, it could be shared lots of places, but you just go and choose the little share button and you say you want to share a clip and you can choose up to a minute of audio. And I shared one actually of an episode that aired recently that had my daughter giving her recommendation and she recommended the Star Wars movies. And I thought it was so cute. So I shared just that clip of her talking and the people don't even have to go anywhere but the place I shared it. it was in this case on Twitter, they could just play it. The video is housed directly there and it means they don't have to go somewhere else to hear it. It uploads the video right there. And it's just a really nice way that was... The article that was written about this new feature talked about that's kind of one of the limitations of podcasting is it's very difficult to share the way that you might share something. We've talked about annotating tools in past episodes that, you know, it's, that's an easy way to share. And podcasting hasn't made that very easy in, in the past. And this is a really exciting new way. I hope that other 
other podcast platforms will use this. Speaking of which, by the way, the person who is the creator of Overcast, his name is Marco Arment, I believe is the last name. But he talked about you're allowed to deselect to say that you made this clip with Overcast. And he did that intentionally. So it's less about his app, but he really wants to influence the podcasts in general, to just encourage more of this kind of sharing. And I think it's a really visionary thing that he's doing there. And I'm just excited about doing some more sharing of podcast clips that I enjoy. And I'm looking forward to doing that. I hope that some of you listening will take advantage of that and share some clips of teaching in higher ed or whatever other favorite podcasts you'd like to share. And JJ, now is your turn to make some recommendations if you would like. Well, my recommendations often change. Like if yesterday someone asked me to make a recommendation, it probably won't be the same yes. as what I'm making now. Uh, maybe tomorrow I will change as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's also part of the learning process. So it also deals with the creativity. Because uh, here's what I would like to recommend. Uh, it's not just my idea. I believe I read from somewhere. So uh, my statement would be, if you only read the books others read, then you can only think the way the others think. So what does that mean? Well, my recommendation is you not just read the books others read. And you, because uh, we are different, we are trying to digest it in a different way. So in that way, we'll have a unique perspective. Wonderful. So that's my recommendation. Thank you. JJ has been so good getting to know you today and getting to know and, and look at your work prior. Thank you so much for helping me prepare for this episode. You have just a magnificent body of work of excellence and teaching. And I've so been honored to have you on today's episode. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Uh, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. What a delight it has been today to have this conversation with JJ Wang. Thank you so much for your time. I was trying to take his statement that he made at the end about if you only read the books that others read, then you can only think the way that others think. And I was trying to apply that to podcasting. If you only listen to or interview the people that other people interview, then you can only, yeah, it's, it's not really working out, but you could probably figure it out for me and maybe tweet to me or something. Before this episode ends, I want to remind you, if you have not subscribed to the Teaching in Higher Ed update, you can get the show notes with the links of the things that we talked about, as well as an article written by me, plus an ebook on 19 ed tech tools that I use in my teaching and productivity. So you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.